1: Hello, everyone. My name is Julie Rugg from the cemetery Research Group at the University of York here in the UK. And I'm delighted, very delighted to be talking to Professor Christine McCusker from the um, Tennessee State University. And I'm going to really mispronounce where you come from. Murfreesboro? Is that Murfreesboro? Yeah, Murfreesboro. Thank you. And um, Christine is Professor of History, Folklore and Ethnomusicology at the university and a former co-director of the Oral History Association. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce this book. Um, It's called Just Enough to Put Him Away Decent, Death Care, Life Extension, and the Making of a Healthier South, 1900 to 1955. And for me, this book covers so many different, exciting and interesting areas of history over that period. Um, And I kind of want to start with a really kind of general question. Um, I think this book it weaves together so many interesting threads. It's, it's got oral history in there, the history of public health, uh, religion, and, and theology is part of that, um, and this broad kind of history of the South. Um, did one particular thread draw you into this book or or was it lots of things together that, that helped you sort of think about this book as this one big project?
0: Well, uh, it actually started with a cemetery back in 2000. Um, I had just moved to Murfreesboro, had taken the job at Middle Tennessee State University, and um, I was driving down this road, and right in the middle of suburbia, there's a major cemetery, right smack dab in the middle of town. Now that may be different for your listeners um, or for the cemetery research group folks, but in where I grew up in San Francisco, um, we have a city of the dead called Colma, California. Mm-hmm. Joe DiMaggio buried there. My aunt, the nun, is buried there. But it's set away. It's hidden. And here I was in Murfreesboro and right in the middle of town, there's this huge cemetery with really interesting um, funereal statuary. Um, and so I finished my first book so I could get tenure and all of that and then I started applying for money to talk about death and I very surprised on where it led me because it wasn't necessarily about the end, but the road to the end, meaning um, just because that cemetery exists existed didn't mean at least in the 20th century that she should be in it sooner rather than later. And what I found was that the South was a place particularly associated within American consciousness nationally as a place that was quite deadly. And at a time where there was no way to know that, I can't tell you if that's true or not. What I can tell you is that perception became at least the initial impetus for folks to begin to say, when do we die? How should we die? And who cares for us at death? Mm -hmm. So So it's really, I think that the thing about the book
1: that's so fascinating is it's, it's kind of drawing together. And this doesn't happen very often, this history of health and life extension is a really interesting way you put it. And this history of death and this tension that sits within the life insurance people that actually we want you to live as long as possible, because it's not profitable for you to die early.
0: Yeah. So it's not just the insurance. So uh, insurance agents and burial societies were really dominant in the South, particularly amongst black communities. Uh, the black burial societies go back to the enslaved eras. I found one in 1743 in Charleston, South Carolina. Nice. And um, but what happened in the 20th century with World War One and the expansion of industrial practices, Something had, you know, the guns and bombs are gone by 1918 or 1919, so what do you do with all that industrial heft? And the answer was, invested in making goods. And one of the sets of goods that became really commercialized, expanded, expensive, um, was um, funeral goods. And so my one of my favorite parts of the book is talking about the ladies in Memphis, the black women who were working class who went to work every day wearing what their employers required them, usually a gray or black mm-hmm. outfit. And here they are buying themselves purple coffins. And that's and, remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, and in as you know, in Protestant theology, Purple is the color of royalty, and I imagine these ladies going to work and imagining that moment where they get to be laid out in that purple coffin. Mm -hmm. And but this stuff was expensive, Mm -hmm. so it's not only the coffin; it's the dress and the hearse ride in the Cadillac hearse Mm -hmm. in an era of racial segregation on cable cars and stuff. Mm -hmm. There you are in a Cadillac, and your family's there, Mm -hmm. and. Southern thinking in the 20th century, and I would argue a little bit now, people didn't think they went to heaven until they were actually on the ground. Right. And so these ladies thought they would be at their funerals and see themselves right. with a love. Uh-huh. Uh, the thing was, though, you know, many of the, you know they would, first of all, pay the burial man or the insurance man first before eating. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't have one or two policies. Um, there's a Charleston, a Black Charleston funeral home that had a book set aside for um just to list the number of policies and you were averaging four, five, six, eight mm-hmm. in some cases. And so the burial mm-hmm. societies, not as much. They're more about ritual. Mm-hmm. But the insurance companies, whether it was a white insurance company or a black one, said Hey, the longer these folks live, these coffins are paid for. Mm-hmm. But I also think there were shifts in theology um, that are especially apparent with the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the Southern Baptist organizing body. Yeah, um, the South didn't have very many hospitals uh, or very much medical care at all, and when I moved, and it was the churches that ended mm-hmm. up paying. For the first really big hospitals in mm-hmm. the South. So when I moved to Nashville, Baptist mm-hmm. Hospital and Methodist Hospital were downtown. Yeah. And so and so I w- went to the Southern Baptist Convention archives, which are in Nashville, mm-hmm. and there's all this literature in their di- annual convention reports saying. This is the hospital that we funded in this state. This is the hospital that we funded in this state. We're going to set aside special deacons, a deaconship, a deaconess ship women to go and minister to these people, because the longer somebody lived, the longer you had to get them to accept Jesus. And if you accepted Jesus. You would get as according to John fourteen two in the King James Bible, which is the standard for the Mm -hmm. air in my um, in my house. Air in my house, there are many mansions. I'm probably Mm -hmm. that you don't get to go to the house with your family family reunion until you've accepted Jesus. Yeah, and so by keep building these hospital rooms, letting people live longer, ministering to them. This was seen as necessary to evangelical Christianity in the 20th century. This is
1: really interesting, isn't it? Because I'm thinking about the UK and thinking about where this simply, this, this connection in terms of health and spiritual wealth, you know, yes. how they connect, simply doesn't happen in the UK. We don't make that connection. And it's interesting, it happens in the US. And one of the things I was, tra- I was talking to somebody about it this morning, I was thinking, the size of congregations that we're talking about, They're, you know, the congregation sizes allow for the accrual of that much wealth to to be able to fund the opening of hospital.
0: Um, to an extent, you know, mm-hmm. a good Baptist, um, and I'm coming from an Episcopal, as, as your mm-hmm. listeners would know, Anglican belief. So our belief system is a little different. Mm-hmm. But um, in Baptist in the Baptist faith, tithing and Methodist too, tithing is crucial. Right. But they yeah. redefined what that tithe did. So there's a financial basis that is pretty solid for a lot right. of these hospitals um, right. that doesn't get rec- And the cost of running these hospitals do not does not get recognized until after World War II, when right. the federal government passed some bills, Hill Act, and I think 1955, that mm-hmm. said, build, we'll help, we'll give you money to build these hospitals, but you got to take care of some folks who are lower income. Mm-hmm. There's a massive expansion in hospitals because of that. Right. But by that time, according to Americans, and the shift came in the 1930s, it mm-hmm. was it had become a right of citizenship, American citizenship, to live a relatively long and healthy life healthy life. Um, this is the Social Security Act of 1935, 101 here. Mm-hmm. And so this sense that there should be others besides the Baptists and the Methodist or the insurance companies or the burial societies which built their own hospitals, mm-hmm. um, that the federal government saw this as a right of citizenship for being an American. Mm-hmm. Awesome. It's, it's, it's kind of fascinating to think about. but. The, I mean, you're
1: covering such a lot of literal space in terms of the, <laughs> the states you're covering. And also a remarkable number of people, you know, uh, the, the oral history um, element of it, I really I really liked because often death scholars, I'm quite liked for my own sort of historical sort of understanding is to delve into what's ordinary, not what's atypical and different, mm. but just thinking yes. what is the ordinary experience? What is, an, you know, somebody like me, a hundred years ago, what are they thinking about the world? yeah, you know, how they see the world? and that you seem to have tapped into an extraordinary wealth of oral histories. I mean, how did that come about? is is this information so routinely available to? I know that you're, you know, such attached to the oral history association,
0: yeah, well, you know, this idea of ordinariness, I mean that's the title one oh one. I was going through some oral interviews that I'll tell you about in just a second. Mm -hmm. And this one woman from 1939 said, well, her husband was one of the first aviators in the Savannah, Georgia area. And she was remembering his death about 15 years later to an oral interviewer. And she said, you know, he left two burial uh, policies that were just enough to put him away decent. And that vernacular, that vernacular, that ordinariness to put somebody away decent—that's the ordinary. It's not the beautiful second line in the New Orleans um, funeral procession, or it's the uh, the ladies dressing up in black and then gray in antebellum South. So the ordinariness is Mm. essential, I think, because Mm. you know, and to find that ordinariness. A, a, one way was with oral histories. Now there's a lot of documents, you know. Death scholars, at least the way I do it, well, and the way you do it too, with the cemetery projects, um, we have more than enough documents, right? Well, it's, I don't know actually. No, I think I think we tend,
1: we, we've we've had a very, in the UK, there's been a tendency to. To see the 20th century as a as a, as a as a place where death wasn't talked about, and this is a very common misconception, and yeah. because uh, which means means a lot of scholars haven't gone looking for it. And okay. I know that this is a history that's yet to be written. This is a huge history that we've not written yet, and I think yeah. I think people's day to day experience will encompass mortality, um, yeah. and they will be talking about it with each other. Uh, yeah, but. And and so I find it frustrating, but also delight I'm delighted that you've demonstrated that you can draw all of these things into a history of mortality very easily.
0: Yeah, it just takes a long time. Um let me tell you about these oral histories. Certainly I did a bunch on my own and I did a bunch with some um have some national institutes of health money to do some research projects and it funded an oral history project with the national Funeral Funeral Directors and Morticians Association, which is nice. the black historically black funeral um, directors society, wonderful people to talk to, very helpful. But I wanted to know, wanted to know about everyday people, mm-hmm. not people who were in the business. And um, back in the 1930s, during the New Deal and the Great Depression, the same processes and the governmental practices that passed the Social Security Act of 1935. Also, said between 1936 and 1940, let's go do oral interviews. They're called life histories and they come out of the Work Progress, Works Progress Administration. Any of your listeners can Google WPA life histories and the Library of Congress website will come up. So these are accessible to anybody. And what I did is there are thousands of them because these folks went from state to state to state, not every state, but, you know, limiting my view to the South, Mm -hmm. there were hundreds of people talking about death and talking about health. And um, the thing that's interesting about these life histories, it's part of the Federal Writers Project, which is a subset of the WPA. And the WPA was redefining American democracy, it wasn't about businessmen or great politicians We would get back to an equitable Economic system if we invested American said at the time in the common man And we would say common man and woman Mm -hmm. and the common man and woman Had stories to tell and so that was the impetus for these oral histories so this vernacular about Just Enough to Put Them Away Decent comes from those oral histories. And mm-hmm. because, you know, lots of different um, interviewers would find people. Um, it kept writers in business so they wouldn't starve, like Margaret Walker, who wrote the book Jubilee, or Ralph Ellison, or Anza Yazerska. And you can see those, they list the authors out. Um, and so, what what it allows you to do because they're not remembering 1936 they go all the way back to the 1850s right Uh, this is also as an aside this is also where the enslaved narrative come from yeah this same project Mm -hmm. um but what i was able to do with these oral histories is begin in rural areas Mm -hmm. and see the see the deaf practices as so much a part of the everyday lives that it was hard to tease them out right because right. it was so routine mm-hmm. these you know and i would julie i would say that um death isn't not talked about but it's talked about as a special case mm-hmm. and what i had to do is look for the ways that it transformed not to something everybody talked about but to something nobody mm-hmm. talked about but the ways it was part and common to being special and unique. And um, and just as an aside um Southerners talk about the dead all the time. The dead don't die here. Mm-hmm. they they put a chair out and tell them to come sit down and you know mm-hmm. the dead yeah. are still there. Um so um yeah so I mean these yeah, are, yeah.
1: The, it's it, it's interesting the way you're talking about it cuz I think there's a sense in which um you, you, there might be a feeling, oh, you know, at what point do you ask somebody about death and funerals? And and it's not like that. That people are actually, this is something they routinely talk about It's part of their life experience, and they don't mm. have to be asked to to introduce it. They 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 feel quite comfortable about talking mm. about that particular subject. And I suppose that's where sometimes. Um, oral history people might think, oh, can we ask about these things? We'd have to fill out ethics forms about whether we're going to distress somebody or not by talking about it. <laughs> you know, we create little boundaries about things that we think we, we should and shouldn't talk about. And I think sometimes people are actually quite willing to talk about things um, given given a very open sort of field to sort of think about. So, so I, it sounds really um, that you have so much material to come out. I think I was also interested how you've managed to pull out from that some of the undertaking business information did that come from your oral history um, funeral director respondents or were they business records that were available that you were able to look at? Um,
0: I did do one oral history with a, a man named John C. Scarborough the third who was the third generation of funeral directors in Raleigh Durham, North Carolina. And let me say as an aside in the United States, oral history is exempt from any institutional review boards or any ethics stuff so really? we can oh, no. so we can ask questions there i walked into an interview you know the ones that i did mm-hmm. at one point and the guy started talking for the next 3 hours and what he yes. wanted to talk to me about is the fact that his mother who was nuts tried to kill him by slitting his throat when he was 4 years old and so there's a oh, corpus of sorts for some people mm-hmm. So um, to your question about undertaking, um, so there were oral history, WPA life histories. I did some, but the undertakers had a tendency to be business records. Mm-hmm. And you could follow the business from rural consumers all the way to um, in the early 1900s, all the way to battlefields across the globe. Mm-hmm. Uh at the end of World War II. And the date for the book ending is 1955. And that's when the last American bodies that mm-hmm. they could find came home. Mm-hmm. Okay, Now they're still finding bodies, as they are in, in England still, too. Um, but it's on those, the, in particular, the ledgers, the funeral ledgers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And ledgers in the South have a special meaning, because if you think about the sharecropping system, which gave rise to, for example, to blues music. Um, mm. Ledgers were tools of exploitation mm. and power plays. And the language in the South is, well, I didn't have the pencil. Right. The person with the pencil gets to mark whether something is paid or not, and whether something is owed. And if you had the pencil, you could say something to the effect of, well, mm. you owe me money, You'll have to stay another year on my land, and maybe you can make it next year. Mm-hmm. And so here are these ledgers that have such profound um, depth mm-hmm. and meaning in the South that become common around 1910, 1915. Right. Okay, and it's very much part of that progressive reform mm-hmm. um, movement in the in the United States, where if you give order to something, you can because mm-hmm. it's all chaotic. Mm-hmm. If you give order to it by filling out paperwork, then you can figure out what the chaos is and solve it. Mm-hmm. The chaos in this case is death that causes the death, that caused people to die very young. Mm-hmm. And you see that on the funeral ledgers because they begin as mm-hmm. so-and-so bought the coffin for, so-and- for their kid. That's it. Okay, so mm-hmm. it's very, very minimal yeah. at first. Here's the um, metal for a casket that was handmade. Um, but then you see it evolve, and you see the practices, the progressive practices evolve. What kind of information do you want now? Mm. Um, so it could be two lines, and then it becomes fifteen mm. lines. And oh, nice. they're, the, these ledgers are treasure troves for genealogists because they list parents. Mm. Um, Do did they? Do did they? And this is a, just an aside, and I, I know yes. it's an interruption.
1: Did they no, start no. to? Um, I know one of the things that's really interesting looking in the UK is 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 how businesses start to use pre printed ledgers. Yes, which then that gives them all of these cells they have to fill in, and that makes them so much so much more valuable, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, and so in the United States, it was one that was printed in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, called the American Funeral Ledger, and. Um, the American funeral ledger that um, uh, it put things in, you know, and by the 1930s, mm-hmm. uh, airplane travel. Uh, the oh, Southern so. didn't do that, you know. Right. By the 1940s, there would be a line for your social security number. Right. Okay. Um, and so the ledgers themselves are these intrusions into healthcare because how did right. the person die? Mm-hmm. Let's count all the causes of death. Mm-hmm and then resolve it. Um, and the states helped out by passing laws that said required death certificates, but mm-hmm. the last death certificates in the South were obligated until 1932, and I think that was Texas. Right. So, the, so these, what were called death registration areas, the South was late to the game because it required the legislation and then it required the people to buy into it. Yeah. And there a good guess at best Mm -hmm. you know i have students i have students who have told me they have people buried babies Mm -hmm. all right this may be a little awkward for some folks but you know stillborn babies that were taken out and never recorded and buried in the backyard and that was it Mm -hmm. so they're Mm -hmm. a good guess at best yeah so these think i mean it's
1: i think uh I think the the, good, the other thing that's really interesting is is actually because I always think about funeral directing as being three things. It's it's all of the all of the kind of like um, legalities. Yeah, it's all of the purchases, and it's also how you put on the event. You know, it's it's like a performance, isn't it? And I think for me, it's always interesting to think about how over time, what's what's thought to be the necessary things you need to buy. Yeah, kind of changes, doesn't it? We talked about yeah. the purple sort of caskets. has been quite an interesting sort of element. Do you get a sense in which, over the time period you're looking at, what was required in terms of what you purchased for your funeral also changed over time?
0: Well, I think some, yes, you do get that from the ledgers. And the ledgers are everywhere. Some of them have been published. Some of them are in archives. Um, they're just a remarkable, there's so many of them, again, mm-hmm. Um, if you want to know who your family reunion is, then you do your genealogy, and the funeral ledgers help you write that genealogy. Right. Okay. Um, what is necessary at first is somebody else to provide handcrafted goods, because the funeral mm-hmm. bodies, the coffins were handmade, mm-hmm. and hand. But by the late late eighteen nineties, early nineteen hundreds, you start to see name plates. Mm-hmm. So let me tell uh, tell your audience something about cemeteries in the South, that each family had its own cemetery, sometimes on its land. And this family cemetery w- was typically within view of the front porch. And so where I grew up in San Mateo County, California, we had one place with a bunch of cemeteries in it. But in the county it, I live in now, Rutherford County, um, Tennessee, there are more than six hundred cemeteries in this right. county, right? Because mm-hmm. each family had its own funeral, uh, its own cemetery, and the per it was purposeful after the Civil War. Well, before the Civil War too, but after the mm-hmm. Civil War, when houses blew down in a tornado, when land because of all the economic depression of you know you have human beings that you purchased as commodities, and mm-hmm. the commodities leave. How do you how do you make a claim to the land as being yours? You bury a body on it. And the body was supposed to um was to supposed to decompose and mix the family's body with the land and mm-hmm. make it intrinsically theirs. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's interesting is that that se- so there were no cemetery stone, very few cemetery stones except for the wealthiest, wealthiest people. Mm-hmm. And instead, memory and um, do you have peonies in York? It's a kind of flower, um, a flower. Yeah, yeah. flowering bush or cedar trees here in Rutherford County. We have a lot of cedar. Um, you would plant them on the grave, and it was the plants that marked
1: right. the
0: bodies, uh-huh. which was problematic later on. But um, yeah. so, but it was expensive it was time intensive and bodies were buried without being embalmed and so mm-hmm. people from rural areas started going to the cities and you see them buying first a name plate mm-hmm. made of metal mm-hmm. which is going to last in the dirt and the casket handles mm-hmm. and then they buy the casket mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden they're buying more things they their political choices again we go mm-hmm. back to the hearse ride to the cemetery where a group of people were told they had to sit in the back of the bus or the cable car Mm -hmm. or whatever. Here they are in a Cadillac hearse with the top down, if it wasn't Mm -hmm. raining, so people would see them in this Mm -hmm. elegance. Mm -hmm. And so these funeral purchases are just phenomenal because of that. Can you see I mean, it's interesting because I think you were talking about flowers
1: as well, and and people photographing the flower the flower displays being really quite elaborate. I mean, did did I, I, did the 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 floral industry, you know, did it really respond to that demand? Was it was it a very specific kind of business that that, that then grew in in response to that demand?
0: So yes and no, yes and that yeah you know if you look at old maps of Murfreesboro and um, they're within a relatively small area there are three florists with their own greenhouses, right. but in the south the as a friend of mine said to me once the backbone of white southern femininity in the south is the garden club, oh but- and so all if you were a fine southern woman black or white. Mm-hmm. You had a garden and you had flowers. And so one of the things that you see um, in the condolence literature Mm -hmm. um, or the cards that were saved, because people would present a card when they came in to express grief, um, it would write down the flowers that were left. And you could tell the time of the year, you know, if it's June, they're going to be gladiolas. Right. Never carnations. (laughs) So the press bless their heart. Uh, the first cover came with a carnation on it. Oh and, right. and another friend of mine said, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> and so it's oh, a, uh, oh tell me, tell me why, why, but because it's considered kind of garish. Oh really? Right. Yeah. So I like carnations personally, but yeah. um <laughs> but in the South you don't do that. And so the right. so we had a conversation about <laughs> let's do a let's do another kind of flower. Right. Yeah, a friend of mine who's in her 50s, she's got a long time yet. She said, I've already told my florist, no carnations. Pick. Right. Okay. Well, we have a similar thing with lilies, which is sort of like ah. people say, oh, lilies,
1: funeral flower. We we don't want any lilies. Yes. <laughs> it's sort of like, mm. yes, know, it's a similar kind of thing. <laughs> really interesting thing, thinking about, I mean, it's one of the things that you draw on, thinking about Emily Post and these etiquette books that start to sort of then talk about what people should and shouldn't be doing. You're talking about oh, you know that seemed a little bit that's a little too much, but this is appropriate. Um, really interesting source to use, I think.
0: Yeah, the etiquette books, especially since Emily Post was so popular in the 1920s. In mm. the argument I make in the book, that there are the- three theoretical, if you will, gurus or intellectual gurus of mm. the 20s: Freud, Havelock Ellis, who's British, mm. and um, Emily Post. But Emily Post is the one people know because she was in the newspaper, she was on the radio, she wrote books that were very accessible. Um, So the average person can't read Freud in his Mm -hmm. original stuff. And he's writing about grief in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. But what Emily Post, who was a Southerner, she was from Maryland. did was she took those ideas and rendered them into a Mm -hmm. system by which, okay, this is what's good and this is what you shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the Southern, you know, there's a lot of about calm demeanor. Mm -hmm. um, They're very worried about melancholy, which is a Freudian term. Mm -hmm. Then too much emotion, too much grief, too much crying. That's really bad, and you have to avoid that. Mm-hmm. So let's put in some practices to make sure people don't venture down that end, except that it's the South. And right. so, it was the really nifty, um, just a really remarkable document? You know, you just go in and start Googling terms about death, condolence, all of this. And at the University of South, uh, South Carolina, there was a two volume um, diary journal, if you mm-hmm. will. Um, by a woman named Nell Melanchamp. Mm. And Nell's sister, Amelia, died in 1925 of breast cancer. And Nell kept a grief journal about her mm. for the next 17 years. And it's two volumes. And it's just, I mean, it, it's a pure mm. example of melancholy because mm. she writes every day, she pastes in cards and notes, and letters, and uh, and this poor woman needed um, needed some psychotherapy and some zoloft. Poor, yeah, absolutely clings to her grief, doesn't she? She yes, really and, becomes and part no, of her identity. Yeah, to a point where her bit her Episcopal bishop says, "Why don't you go try get some sleep?" And that letter is posted into the journal and stuff mm-hmm. too. So the ritual yeah. isn't perfect by any means, and this is a. A family, very elite white family in uh, in Columbia, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of, you know, the funeral was at home still, mm-hmm. Um but embalmed and all of that. And it just, mm-hmm. it's, it's a document with a lot of shame and a lot of grief in it. And that's not what Emily Post was shooting for. She was trying to move people away from that. It was interesting though, isn't
1: it? I think From you know, you were talking about um, you know this tension that sits within the South, you know, and thinking about refreshing the grief. I think is a really interesting concept. And thinking about the UK, we don't have open caskets. It's not, you know, the family might go to the funeral director very in a very private way and visit, but that's not a public event by any stretch of the imagination. Whereas you know the the understanding is that in America it can be a public event and that lots of people. Oh, yeah, that. but there's also a sense of what's what's appropriate at those occasions, you know, to get it yeah. right is really quite important.
0: Yeah. So refreshing the grief was, you know, people would, in rural areas especially, but I still see it happen now, mm-hmm. is they would, clo- they would have the funeral at home, they would close the casket, and then they would walk to the cemetery, which is typically within walking distance, mm-hmm. right? And they would open the casket up one more time. Mm-hmm. And let everybody refresh it. it the psychological release mm-hmm. is actually quite healthy when you stop and think about it, um, mm-hmm. particularly for Southerners mm-hmm. who were very practical, had a lot of work to do, who mm-hmm. wanted to, who said, okay, we've grieved, I need to move on. Mm-hmm. And so there's a healthiness there. But what's also really interesting is that at the end of World War II, when those soldier bodies came back, mm-hmm. Families across the South, and I've since learned, not just in one place, but in many places, Mm -hmm. um, people were opening up the caskets once again to say goodbye and refresh the grief. Mm -hmm. And the stories in the um, book are from the escort records, military escort records Mm -hmm. for the state of Mississippi. But I have been getting into some World War II documents recently, Mm -hmm. and there's a woman from Alabama who said... Well, when my hu- when my son comes home, he was a parachutist with the eighty eighth Infantry, and when he comes home, I'm going to have to open up the casket to make sure that he was put mm. away decent. Mm. Then, and this letter was written in 1947, and she says, signs the letter, "Yours for World Peace." Right. You know, it, because mm. she's well aware that the Cold War is beginning to emerge. Her yes. son's body is part of the negotiations that are going on at the time as they're trying to get bodies home from russia and germany and all those other places yeah it's interesting isn't it because i think i mean how
1: it's very cause i've I've kind of almost been imbued it in <laughs> sudden death now for a few months reading about it quite a lot and thinking about how it contrasts with northern states and and sometimes i wonder how practices travel from one place to another you know, with the repatriation of bodies, then you would get um, and as you were talking about yourself, you know, how how certain sort of um the this mixture of people from different parts of America within aircraft crews and yeah, and uh, and the notion that you would have um northern soldiers coming to southern states and seeing these this this response to the body coming back and and how they thought about that as being did they would they regard that as particularly southern or was this something that happened in northern states as well? this notion of keeping the not not a thing
0: you know well one of the things that i say in the book is that you know everybody it, the truism isn't that everybody dies the truism is that everybody dies and produces a lot of paperwork so being able to except when northern soldiers were bringing bodies back during world war ii and to a lesser extent world war one um but also because of the progressive reform movements that Mm -hmm. people in the South were actively engaging with their Northern peers. It's Mm -hmm. really difficult to see the ways some of these issues that I find in the South manifest in the North. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this is more of a research agenda Mm -hmm. rather than a set of stable conclusions because everybody Mm -hmm. dies and leaves a lot of paperwork. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but those intrusions... Um, Particularly with um, wartime death are really essential because the U.S. military, particularly its funereal section called the quarter part of the quartermaster corps, Mm -hmm. they're going to do things their way. Mm -hmm. You know, you laid out really nicely that you know a funeral is a set of legal practices, a set of material culture, and then a ritual. Mm -hmm. Well, the legal stuff with the U.S. military is significant. Right. And it causes a lot of changes in the South because this is how it's done by the military, and the families want the honor from the military. So one mm-hmm. of the things that changes is people become more accustomed to requesting a cemetery stone
1: mm-hmm.
0: because you got one free no matter yeah. when you died Right. if you were a World War I soldier or a World War Two I- one as well. But by then, the practice had become more common. And mm-hmm. so it's common in the South Mm-hmm. And sure in the North too. Um, to see a family chosen stone now, but there's also the World War II stone, yeah or one stone on the same plot, because they want both. Yeah. And I think in the UK it's
1: interesting to see how the the kind of the the, the Wargrave aesthetic creates a really strong appetite for um almost a democracy and death that everybody should have stone. Yes. Why should everybody? Why? Why should we? You know, there was a sort of a sense in which the Victorian sort of obsession with, with status was no longer a modern thing. You know, we're moving on now, and that everybody should have a stone. And okay, they're modest, but everybody has one. Yeah, so it, it kind of feel it fits with the notions of welfare states, You know, everybody. Yeah. Uh, and but I, I, I kind of I was really intrigued by how writing about the very how the military on. Oh, how do you? Th- I mean, I'm trying to think whether did it tread carefully or did it just charge on through the racial divides, you know, of saying you know the the sensitivities that sat around the the desire to have segregated responses and and the notion that actually in the the war uh, cemeteries that were being created by the U.S. military that segregation was simply not visible.
0: Mm, yeah. So um, World War One and World War Two are two vastly different experiences, in part because the Americans. Hadn't uh, we Americans didn't show up for the war in 1917, and according to British and French um, leadership, quite late in the game. Um, but for us, it was really the first time with World War One that we had been involved globally in a, in a war in a meaningful way, and it required the U.S. military to draft a very, very large army. Four million guys were eventually drafted. But to give you a sense of how small the military was beforehand, um, I don't know the numbers before the war. But after the war, they, um, the milita- U.S. military was 135,000 people. Wow. And mm-hmm. the leadership, the generals and the colonels and all of that tended to be Southern. Mm-hmm. And so the practices in the military, not all, obviously, mm-hmm. but the practices in the military reflected Southern thinking. To the extent that there's an article in the New York Times this morning about um, a group of, I believe, 52 black soldiers mm. who were at Sam Fort, Houston, uh, Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, and there was a fight, and 17 of them were hum, a form of um, military-approved lynching, which is a very southern tool. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. Um, and so, but with the, um, you know, in a democracy, everybody, in a, if you're going to fight a war for democracy, which is how Woodrow Wilson sold it to the American people, the ultimate democracy is in death. And mm-hmm. you get a plot, you get a stone, your family is treated the same-ish mm-hmm. as much as possible. So um, Black families started to see, you know, they see this. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're not dumb, they're p- making these mm. connections. Dying for democracy, I don't get democratic rights. Mm. Um, yeah. And so the military, um, there's one in um, England, there's a bunch in Belgium and France, mm. I've been to St. Aval to see that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, those military cemeteries were set up after World War I as an option for mm. soldiers and families. The majority of Southern families brought their boys home, not all, right. And some of the photos that I have in the book are, but what if they were left there? Mm-hmm. They buried without regard to race. They buried without regard to religion. And mm-hmm. in the South, where the Presbyterians were separated from the Methodists, that's mm-hmm. huge. Yes. Yeah. A lot of those decisions were mm-hmm. passe mm-hmm. by World War II. Um, so the last chapter, uh, s- the last two chapters talk about two soldiers, and one of them was a Tuskegee Airman, mm-hmm. whose dad was Dean of Students at Fisk University here in Nashville. William J. Faulkner, Jr., mm-hmm. Sr. was at Fisk, and I went and visited his grave. Um, Billy Faulkner um, crashed after 56 missions in a mm-hmm. P-51 Mustang, and the must P-51 Mustangs and the P-47s were the I call them the attack posse, were the big lumbering bombers. The B-24 bombers were not mm-hmm. agile um, planes. And so these P-51 Mustangs, these these folks were the ones who were making sure the bombers mm-hmm. got to their targets. And they mm-hmm. were so good and so effective that the Luftwaffe had to rethink its entire airplane mm-hmm. flight strategy for the war. And Billy Faulkner flew 56 mm-hmm. missions not including mm-hmm. a bunch of reconnaissance stuff to mm-hmm. find pilots who didn't come back. And his dad wrote letters saying to the military, I want him buried. He fought for democracy, and I want him buried democratically, mm-hmm. but not on German soil. Right. Which mm-hmm. is really poignant. So if you go see Billy uh, Captain Faulkner's grave mm-hmm. in St. Abel, France, you can tell if he's black or not. There's another right. Tuskegee airman in that um mm-hmm. In that cemetery, it's William J. Faulkner Jr., Captain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it's really it, interesting, and so his dad—that's what he wanted. That's what his uh-huh. dad wanted. And I really like the fact that the military said, "Okay."
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, I we, we I think we
1: get in the UK rather less in the way of cooperation, you know, <laughs> in terms term, from the military because the, the decision was made not to repatriate after the First World War, and that uh-huh. and. and, and and actually, the, the stories now are beginning to be told about how families responded to that and the existence of, you know, lobby groups and unions against that measure of, of women trying to get their sons back to say, you can't, you you know, and, and I think we're only beginning to tell that story.
0: But think about British history versus American history in terms of global warfare, mm-hmm. that there's precedent, you know, we could think of the defeat of the Spanish Armada back way back that there are people that British soldiers have been all over the globe Mm -hmm. by wars. American soldiers identifying as American Mm -hmm. is relatively, at least comparatively new. Mm -hmm. Sure, there's a little bit with the Spanish-American War in the 1890s, but really there's different assumptions in the military, Mm -hmm. the British military, about what happens to those bodies versus Mm -hmm. an American military. And it's also yeah. in that shift with World War One. it's also how do you keep people um, invested in the war effort? If you tell mm-hmm. them the bodies aren't coming back, you're going to have a problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a dip- completely different sort of like rhetorical strategy, isn't it? Yeah. I'm thinking about, I think the feeling was that if we started to bring bodies home, specifically in the First World War, it would be so bad for morale. Yeah. You know, to see this this trail of hundreds of thousands of bodies coming back that it you couldn't be born, it just you just couldn't, people couldn't bear it. So it's interesting well, sort of thinking about it in those terms,
0: Julie. Just so you know, I, from an you know, when I teach World War One versus World mm-hmm. War Two, of course, I bring up mortality statistics. Mm-hmm. World War One, 900,000 British soldiers died, mm-hmm. in World War Two, 200,000 died. So, first of all, there's something different going on in terms of health and wellness. But it also was a different war, and so those ideas that that train of funeral caskets in World mm. War One—it was bad enough as it was,
1: yeah—without
0: seeing nine hundred thousand caskets.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think. Oh, can we just? Uh, we're, we're kind of running out of time, but I just want sure. one tiny little more comment from you about the Spanish flu. So, so. What's absolutely fabulous about your book that I really like about it, because it integrates history of the Spanish flu with this general, and and I think the this epidemic, this massively, um, you know, the epidemic is really only just, we're just beginning to recognize it as this point in history. Um, yeah. and, and you kind of integrate it into an understanding of what happens after the war. Do you think then, I mean, it's a strange question to ask. Do you think we've, we've, underestimated or do we overestimate the impact of the flu when we're thinking about the history of death? Do you think actually, once the flu had happened, things just went back to normal, or do you think it had a longer term impact than that?
0: Um, okay. So from an American perspective, well, and understand I get that this was a global phenomena yeah. that in um, best guesstimate term, 60 million people died. In the United States, best guesstimate, 600,000 people died. The way the literature reads, at least for historians of disease, not death, disease, Mm -hmm. is that World War One caused the Spanish flu. Right. In that it's, and again, this is an American-centric story here, and I believe that there it it actually is bigger. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But the way it reads in the literature right now that it started at um, Fort Riley, Kansas. The military training depot in 19, spring of 1918. It went overseas during the summer of 1918 with those soldiers and underwent some sort of evolutionary turn. It migrated, and that's the deadly second wave, it migrated back to Fort Devons near Boston, Massachusetts in September 1918. And it's the very processes of war that makes everybody get Spanish flu. And the Spanish, and um, not just in terms of how the bug evolved. And again, this is huge mm-hmm. estimation here, but also how it was passed along, because mm-hmm. it didn't separate troops away from everyday public mm-hmm. in military parades. They had huge military parades, super spreader events. Mm-hmm. They put the soldiers on trains amidst civilian populations. Um, and so it's the very processes of the war that make the flu possible. Um, I I think you're entirely correct that mm. the 1920s were about the flu, about, mm. you know, there's a, at least in the United States, there's a certain nihilism, you know, we're going to die tomorrow, so let's go party. Um, so the flappers, because the thing about the flu is that it has a different mortality curve, mm. the usually is a U curve, so babies and elderly, but this one had a W curve, babies, elderly, people 18 to 35, which is prime Mm -hmm. soldier material. These are young people who the life extension folks are saying, no, you're going to live to be an older person, and they're dying like flies. Mm -hmm. So that sense of demoralization, Mm -hmm. not just amongst the progressives, but because dying to them was a lot uh, dying was a loss of sorts, not just a loss, but they lost. It's like a game. It was a game that they lost. Um, but people who were 18 to 35 and saw all their friends and, um, and sisters and brothers and age-years die, it's it's there biting that. Again, it's so much a part of everyday life that it's hard to tease that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's when you get to the ritual that it becomes more obvious. Yeah. But what's the ritual in this case? Yeah, yeah. It's it,
1: it's all been so fascinating, and I'm sure we could talk for a lot of long time. It's been very, it's so interesting to talk through some of these themes with you. And and I'm I'm just again I'm just saying I'm so delighted by your book. I'm delighted by the way it draws together these very common narratives, the way it talks about theology, and the, the way it builds health into the the narrative of death, and the way it talks about these very specific rituals and customs and how they change over this period Um, and I just urge everybody to read it. I think that's how you kind of want to end. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks ever so much for speaking to me. Thank you.